Welcome to the uh, new Crackpot podcast. I don't know if we have a title for our podcast anymore, secret podcast really, but I am Lynn and I'm here with James and a special guest, Mr. Clark Savage, the author of King of All Things, uh, A Guide to Man's Martial Purpose. Clark wrote this book as a really broad overview of what it means to be a man with the concept governing it that a man is meant to be a warrior and uh, how you can develop that in yourself. So thank you for joining us, Clark. Well, thank you, Lynn. Hi, James. Thanks, James, for being on the call. James, I think of James as my co-host, but he thinks of himself usually as just a guest. <laughs> it's like, not, I shouldn't say just a guest, but as the special <laughs> guest of every episode. Thanks, guys. It's been a while. Uh yeah, when was the last time you recorded? I think we recorded some in maybe October or November, maybe in the fall, because I haven't even put them all up. I was looking through my files, and I actually have a couple of podcasts to edit and post. So I am very, oh. um, I'm very behind in all my work. All my crackpot work is is very poor. Twenty twenty two was my worst year of crackpot work. P- lowest output. Terrible. How many books did you, you put out like six books, right? Uh, I'm scared to even look how many, I don't remember. It was terrible. But 2023, we're gonna do better. It's January. I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm gonna put this out first. I, I will not, like usually try to do first in, first out, but I will go ahead and publish this one soonest. Uh, hopefully very soon. So, Okay, so you guys are both writers, and we're here, mostly want to tell what we can about King of All Things, and then also follow whatever good digressions we can come to. So I read most of your book, Clark. Thank you for writing it. Thank you um, for sharing. It's not easy, I think. It's it's a big job and a big gift to others to write, both of you. Uh uh, it was fun to see the places where you referenced La Fond, both uh, mostly having to do with like combat survival uh, and, and boxing and things like that. What we were talking about just before we kicked off was how t- how athletes maintain their arts as they age. James, we've talked about all your various injuries and your hernias that you're dealing with, and Clark was just getting into. Uh, the research that you've done on, you know, what the balance is between strength training and conditioning and things like that. So let's get back to that. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thanks for reading the book and uh, and helping promote it. I appreciate that. Now, on the bench press test, we were chatting a little bit about how the Navy was trying to figure out what ways there are to help predict um, who would be good candidates for success in special warfare units. And one of the things they found out was that there's a range of bench press versus someone's body weight, meaning uh, being able to put your body weight on the bar and bench it for a certain number of repetitions, that they found that there was a curve there. And people that were on the lower end of the curve tended to fail um, at a higher rate when they were put into special warfare training and people that were on the too high end of the curve, you know, meaning upwards of 
15 to 20 repetitions on their body weight on the bar uh, were not doing as well either. And there's sort of a middle sweet spot where guys did better. And that was, you know, somewhere in that five to 10 repetitions of their body weight on the bar tended to be a predictor of success with that. So there's, so we were talking a little bit about how, you know, there's probably a balance there. Uh, that's a principle that you can generalize on whether you're doing too much or too little in one particular fitness category. And so these people, their, uh, their body, I guess, is searching for what would be their, uh, you know, their competitive combat weight class. You know, guy, the same guy will perform very much differently at different weights. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So, like, my weight, when I push it up on the upper end, you know, we're getting up to, like, the 220 zone. That, for me, is I'm strongest there, but at the same time, my fitness level, cardio level is goes into the shitter. And I've realized that I've got to be a little bit lighter than that to be at sort of the sweet spot of where I want to be. So again, it always gets down to your goals. What are your goals really? So are you trying to maximize strength? Are you trying to maximize your fitness level? Are you trying to do something else, um, your cardio level? So it comes down to goals, but uh, personally as someone that's not very talented in any dimension, I like to have somewhat of a balance there where I feel good and I feel strong enough. And how does that impact you? You mentioned now you're reaching middle age. What observations have you had like between the balance between strength and cardio and injuries? And, you know, tell us about it. Because James has definitely more than his fair share of injuries uh, as an athlete. And in your book, you do talk about like that you don't necessarily want to take it as far as James has. <laughs> right. Uh, particularly for head injuries. No more concussions. That's what we want, James. No more concussions. Okay. I don't get them as easily since I, I, I haven't been this light since. Let me see. I got knocked out in the Maryland o- Open by Rico Aris in 2007. And I had a hard time getting down to 157. So I was walking around at 168 and I was starting to get a lot of concussions. Uh, since I've been under 160, I've gotten hit a lot. I mean, I've been boxing guys that are literally like 30 years younger than me. And if I even want to hit them, I got to eat five punches. And it's not, I'm, I'm not providing much friction uh, or resistance for the punch. And I, I haven't been getting concussed. So I actually was really getting concussed when, I was in that weight range. I got most of my concussions between 05, 06. I got some in 05. So, uh, but I was fighting super good guys in 05 and 06 and all the way up to 2015. So when I was still light enough to move really well, but I was overweight because my best fight weight would be like 143 when I was a young guy. When I was in the 160s and 170s, that's when I got the most concussions. When I'm under 160, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be, uh, I've really got to get hammered bad, uh, you know. So it's uh, it's kind of an interesting puzzle. Yeah, it is, you know, and your own body weight obviously contributes to your own knockout. And I think you can see that from, 
like how many one punch KO artists are there that are featherweights, you know, not too much, but uh, the big bodies on the heavyweights they're in a way they're kind of knocking themselves out just because the rest of your structure, I don't think can bulk to that degree to deal with your own body weight at a certain level. Yeah. So it's, it's been interesting. I, I, uh, I don't recommend what I've done for other people to do for like, a, you know, um, for combative or self-defense or survival and quite makes some good points about those definitions in the book, which I liked a lot. But uh, I, uh, my goal was just to try to have a thousand stick fights because I can't do stats. And I, I just wanted to, since I'm slightly below average physically in, in size and, and everything, I thought I'd be a good control study for injuries. Like if, you know, this was a sport that a lot of guys did, I think I'd, I would be able to predict, uh, a lot of the injuries by my own activity, but I only made it, I didn't even make it to 700 fights, you know, it's like 680 or, or, or something like that. Yeah, so. Well, that, that's still that's a ton. Still that's still a ton. <laughs> and the ton, stats yeah. are not, the stats are, would not be really representative because you are a person who does not fear your own pain and suffering, <laughs> you know, like there's, people are different in their, athletic endeavors there are people who are more cautious and you know so you would not be a representative sample anyway but good try <laughs> well i was promoting it as a, you know, <laughs> i just liked it so much better in ball sports i don't stick fighting should be like a national sport or something so i i did my little part promoted at the iska and it was like yeah this is really cool this is nuts so yeah <laughs> clark what do you think about this slap fighting it's all over my twitter Dana White's yeah. doing like a yeah, slap Yeah, I posted on that too. The, you know, on one level, it's funny. You know, you try not to take everything too seriously with, you know, these grandiose comments about, uh, you know, society kind of in some state of decline where people would be that entertained by it. But so on one level, it's kind of funny. But then on the other level, it's it's just a little bit. It's sort of like a non-sexual prostitution, right? These people are up there to be laughed at. Right. So unlike like uh, prize fighting, for instance, people aren't laughing at the MMA fighters. You know, they're entertained by the violence and the, the spectacle of of it. Uh, and maybe there's a problem with watching that, too. I don't know. I'd like to get James's thoughts. But the uh, you know, there's a difference between participating and then just purely watching. I think I think there's a corruption in the viewer at a certain point if he's only a watcher. But for the slap fight, you're literally there to laugh at these guys like you want to see someone concussed from a bitch slap so yeah it's um, i don't like seeing it i just i mean uh you know i'm probably different than the average viewer but it's it's unpleasant james it's like you've seen you may not have seen this latest batch of clips uh-huh. but you know what we're talking about people who just stand there and take turns slapping each other wow and yeah. and some of yeah. these guys just go down and start seizing it's very unpleasant it say. sounds like it's kind of the natural evolution of, uh, you know, the North American land whale liking to watch, uh, you know, marginally attractive Latino chicks become less attractive in cage fights, you know, where because <laughs> the MMA, like a lot of MMA fans come from pro wrestling. And uh, even with boxing, like uh, watching a boxing match, it depends on who you're looking at it with. If you're watching it with guys that have never fought before, 
they're kind of all hoping to see a knockout. They're hoping to see a reason why they should never fight, okay, and justify their swath. And they're actually, like, they're, they're just, they're hoping that the guy that's supposed to lose is going to lose in disastrous fashion, okay? And they're cheering on Ali or Tyson, whoever's supposed to win. They want them to win in overwhelming fashion and point at that and say, see, that this is why only one guy can do this. Everybody else is a bum. The media is totally built around it. And then I can't even watch MMA cards anymore because all, all these fat American dudes just can't wait. to. If you see who passes around the knockout clips of like some some chick, you know, that's not even breedable anymore because of her activity and her prime of life is getting knocked out by some less feminine chick. And then all the guys that are thrilled about it are like all these fat dudes. You know, so it's kind of disgusting. So hopefully Eastern Europeans will end up dominating this slap thing to the point where Americans will just lose interest in it. You know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're getting into something what I wanted you guys to talk about, which is why you you find it important for men to actually participate in combat sports. I mean, I'm not sure if that's the right word. Martial arts. I mean, something that you know, is a real fight with a risk of injury and uh, the need to impose your will upon an opponent. Um, you know, that's that's a point both of you guys have made. So, and, and you're getting into it on how, how the spectators differ. And that's something I know you've written about, James. You had a, a match that you, um, you threw because you didn't like the way the spectators were. Yeah, and it was only five people watching it. And... I could tell, and I knew the guy I was fighting, and they were excited about me knocking out Jeff. Well, so I just clinched with him, and you know, it was it was just a draw. I wasn't going to knock him out for them, and I already satisfied myself that I was going to knock him out, so I could, uh, you know. So I just beat him up a little bit and let him hit me, and then we just finished it. You know, because I was, I was like, he's the one I had something in common with, not not the guys that were watching it. Uh, we were, we were boxing in a basement with three ounce karate chops on, and our hands wrapped underneath of it, so it's kind of nasty. Uh, but uh, Clark made the prostitution point. I mean, for the ancient Romans, even the gladiators were prostitutes. Okay, uh, you know, but they served a purpose, and that's why it was a scandal if a high status Roman. You know, or anybody with social status would actually get involved in it. And so it was such a scandal when Commodus became a gladiator because, you know, it was a spectacle to kind of instruct Romans. It's how it started and it ended up being something to distract them from, you know, uh, putting pressure on the upper class. But uh, Clark made a really, he had a big discussion in his book on uh, the honor fight and where it crosses over with survivalism and self-defense and you pointed out some of the some of the real uh, problems with those mindsets i particularly liked your take on survivalism yeah it's uh you know it's one of those things where i think people you don't want to go in there and say oh well this is unrealistic or that's unrealistic or that's not useful at least i don't because you want guys to get involved in these things and i think there's a benefit to it uh, to doing this versus other types of physical activities. But at the same time, you got to go in there realizing that 
each of these is a simulation of actual combat. And from that, you're going to get uh, things that are going to distort what is useful and what isn't useful. Like just as a classic example, like I'm mostly a boxing background. The um, I did some BJJ back in the day, but I, to be honest with you, I wasn't really that into it. Did some wrestling too, but mostly boxing background. And, and the boxing stance itself um, is like you'll see MMA guys don't really take a boxing stance generally just because your legs are right there for the double leg takedown or single leg takedown. So that in itself creates a distortion of where you want to be for movement, for boxing, for throwing your punches and getting some torque and twisting action in your punches. Where your hips have to be for that is different than where it needs to be for wrestling. So it can create a distortion of what it might be actually useful um, in a different setting, in a more in a more combat setting. So er everything that you go into, you have to take that mindset of of what is positive training that I'm getting from this, and and what is negative training, you know, what is reinforcing bad habits, things that aren't useful, uh, and things like that. Uh, your could you revisit your point? It was one of the last things I read. You referenced Younger and Howard a lot in your book. And uh, Younger, in particular, you used him as a reflection on how uh, really modern survivalism, even though we think of it as like this extreme, you know, lone wolf type of mindset, is actually almost like an, an apex uh, uh, merchant class. Uh, ethos. Right. Yeah. Er Ernst Junger uh, had, I don't remember which it was in, maybe it was in On Pain, but in one of his writings, he talked about what he called the, uh, you know, this word is used a lot, bourgeois, but his definition of that was essentially people that are oriented primarily on comfort, oriented on their safety. Um, and I think the as we just saw as we enter these COVID era here, that that is something that people have taken to a, a really taking to heart here where they're oriented almost totally on their safety and their comfort. And the point I was trying to make is that at a certain level, if because a lot of what we talk about, I think overlaps a little bit with the survival um, genre of, of writing that from their perspective, uh, I still think that they're still oriented primarily on safety, right? They're trying to, what do we need to do to survive? Even when they think about violence, they're thinking about it from a perspective of survival. Uh, and I think Ernst Junger would say that that's just another type of bourgeois safety attitude. Um, so there's a little bit of a distinction there, and I try to make a distinction in the book about what I'm writing about here is not survival. And self-defense has its own problems, too. You know, I, I danced around that when I was writing the combat books. So what do you call it? Self-defense is kind of, I don't know, it, uh, right. it, it can become uh, too selfish. And then as soon as you start worrying about defending yourself, well, if you're the defender, uh, you're already at a disadvantage. Uh, and, you know, it's not like a military situation where you got your three to one effect because you're dug in 
and you got to feel the fire, you're just out there in the same situation as the other guy, and his aggression counts for a lot. So I also had a problem with the uh, I tended to prefer survival over self-defense, but uh, I, I kept running into semantic problems with both of them, trying to apply it to a way to talk to young fellows about, uh, uh, you know, maintaining their autonomy. I think that's what I decided on, that you were just going to try to maintain a piece of your autonomy, uh, you know, by whatever you did combatively. Yeah, I I think there's a big, a broader point here, which is that so many uh, of us who seem to be on the right wing in in different ways have really we do have I have to say this for myself more of a defensive mindset like I want to be I want to do my thing I want to be left alone and that translates out through everything you know the prepping mindset it's like I'm going to build a fortress where nobody can interrupt me I'm going to have food and water and this like you know, we just, we don't have the aggression somehow or the offensive mode. We can't talk about it. Not going to, we're not going to fed post, right? <laughs> but I, I just feel like that is a theme over and over. Yeah. At some point you have to think about is the purpose of my life and my existence and how, how I'm going to express myself. It can that be summed up as just mere survival or something else. And I think, it should be something else other than that. But, um, and the problem is when you start talking about, you know, whether you're talking about combat, uh, combat sports or firearms or any of these other subjects that kind of bleed into this category is that the dominant way that people talk about these subjects is to talk about them in the context of survival um, as opposed to sort of expression of yourself as a man, which, which I think the, Combat sports gets into that where, um, and I think you've noted, James, that if you look at the history of boxing going back thousands of years now, the the boxing itself was probably uh, promoted in part among the warrior class because of things that it gave you, the attributes that it gave you mentally, right? So what is the number one thing that boxers do, have to do that, other sports don't is they have to take punishment it's impossible to be a boxer without taking punishment including blows to the head so you know in ancient fighting i'm sure that was a help to them of you know if they have a bronze helmet on and they're getting battered on a shield line the experience that they've had boxing of being able to deal with blows to the head and not you know and still be able to function properly i think is there's a preparation there and there's a thing that it's giving you apart from the, you know, skill of using your hands and, and, and throwing punches. The, um, the interesting thing with the ancient Greek, well, overall, the two cultures that promoted boxing the most um, amongst their uh, fighting class were the ancient Greeks and the modern Anglo uh, you know, military cultures. And one is pushing with spears, uh, you know, the, the hoplite culture, and which would you would figure functionally that wrestling would help more. And there was some, and uh, wrestlers turned out to be real important frontline fighters, and the Pancratius tended to be leaders. 
the guys that were feared and respected in private life were the boxers. There were the, everybody was kind of afraid of the killer instinct of the boxer. And then the uh, in the firearms age, uh, where you just shredded meat standing in the line, boxing also became important. And there's like no technical relationship to to the combat art. So it's pretty obvious that psychological conditioning was the thing that really you know brought boxing into and then back into you know the western martial culture uh, so i think uh that that makes it it gives it a lot of staying power that, yeah. that the fact that it's going to psychologically condition you to you know face the the quarter of the world that your punishment's coming from uh, yes yeah. it's, it's that simple yeah and i would say tying into lynn's earlier point about the aging thing you know there's a tension there right because the, you're gaining these things from boxing, but at the same time, it, to me, anyway, it takes the most from you. Yeah. The, you know, at, as I've aged, I've really ramped down um, that aspect of my life, and my fitness activities are mostly now things related to cardio, things related to weights, um, things that aren't the sort of dynamic contact, just because the injury rate for me as I aged is, you know, boxing created so many more injuries from for me than weights ever have, ever have, um, that it's, in fact, it's a dwarf, the boxing injuries have dwarfed my injuries that I've gotten from weight training, which is, a weight training, I think, is a pretty safe, you know, once you get form down and you have a little bit of, of strength and you don't get stupid about what you're doing in the gym, it's fairly injury-free. Uh, but I've never been able to go a prolonged period um, without getting injured in boxing. So the, I think that's one of those things where my view is as you age, that if you want to be able to be physically capable, you know, going into your later years, that, that the combat sports is probably something that should get ramped down. Um, but, you know, maybe that's, that maybe that's my inner pussy talking to me as, uh, as, James continues to go at it, even though he's got hernias and everything going. Uh, the, you know, the one thing I found, the main reason why I got into stick fight, stick fighting so heavily, I mean, I, I had the research excuse, right? So I was essentially doing it for that when I started trying to look at ancient weapon fighting. Never even ended up doing any writing on that. I just got into doing it. Uh, boxing was getting too tough for me to do when I was in my late 30s. Uh, but I had a lot of energy. I had missed most of my 20s and half of my 30s from work injuries, from being able to do anything. So I had a lot of combative energy left. So I used the stick fighting as a replacement for the boxing and only boxed when I had to. And I got to tell you, between age 45 and I lost my last boxing match in 2002 against Chuck Getz. So, and I think I was in my late 30s. Uh, from age 45 to just two years ago, I hated boxing. I dreaded it because it had really taken everything from me. And I'm moving like at a third of the speed of the people that are at the age where they want to do it. And uh, I got a lot of injuries. I mean, I remember helping Sean practice for a fight, and he was taking it easy. I mean, he hit me in the every time he punched me in the nose, my rebuilt nose sounded like a styrofoam cup when you step on it. OK, 
And that was kind of creepy, but he just hit me with a white hook and it drained my sinuses into my lungs. The next day I had bronchitis, Um, you know, so I was really uh, I I was really ambivalent about doing any type of boxing. And I had the problem of most of the people I'm coaching don't have a gym or reliable sparring partners. So I started sparring again. And then what I I found out on the eve of extinction, you know, in my. Really, my 59th year, I started getting comfortable with boxing again. A lot of it had to do with weight loss because I was not getting hit nearly as hard as I was. Um, you know, so I guess that's a big part of it. But, uh, for instance, I don't get hurt boxing nearly as much as I did when I was, and I've done it competitively a couple of times in the past year, I don't get hurt nearly as much at 59 at the same weight that I was when I was in my late thirties. I think okay. you've reached some kind of Zen, like bodily Zen where you just, the punches flow through you or something. I think it's right, cause I'm, you a, talked I, to, I'm a wiggly corpse now. Well, no, you, you know, talk about how that, that you, kind of it's gone, the relaxation, you know? right? That you can spar longer than younger guys that were more fit because you have achieved this. I'm not kidding. It's some kind of Zen state, right? The beard helps. I got beat up in big Tony's living room on Christmas Eve. Fortwin Joe came over and we boxed and he beat the piss out of me because he's scared to death of me. And he tries not to hurt me stick fighting. He's as good, you know, I, he's as good as anybody with it now, but he was kind of nervous about his boxing and he just tried to stay away from me. So when we moved the dining room table because there was an ice storm out and we boxed in the six by eight ring, he was freaked out the entire time. So he beat the piss out of me. And um, eventually he ran out of gas before I ran out of whiskers. I found out that the beard really helps. But if I boxed with him every day, I'd have a big bald spot right on the chin because I lose like 10 whiskers every time I box. <laughs> Somebody can hit me, but that, it really helps. The beard actually helps. So I understand the metaphor now better. Well, yeah. guys, yeah, professional fighters, I think, sometimes put uh, make a big deal about the other guy's beard. Um, they, I'm sure it does. I've never had a, a, any kind of prominent beard, but I'm sure it would help a little bit. I've seen as I've seen two pro fights where they made a guy shave his beard and both athletic commissions. One of them was the Illinois Athletic Commission ruled that the beard could not be longer than an inch. Uh, and, and I found it's true it, when it was an inch or two. It never helped me. But now since I actually have this like rat's nest attached to my chin, you know, I ate a really good right from from Jersey John back in May. I was like, wow. I mean, that didn't even bother me, but I found the beard hairs when I was sweeping up the ring after the uh, after we were done. And in the amateurs, you're not allowed to have any beard and they're really strict about they sometimes they make you shave your mustache, too, because they're afraid of a hair getting on a glove that's got Vaseline on it and then going into the eye. Okay, so there's a reason why, like, USA Boxing does not allow any type of beard or goatee, and it's for eye safety. But, yeah, it's uh, – I kind of thought it was just a myth that the beard would help you. Uh, But I've actually discovered through repeated uh, tests that it's it's just not as bad getting hit in the chin when you got uh, (laughs) when you got an SOS pad there. I'll take your word for that one, James. I'll I'll let you (laughs) know.
And it, it also helps the fencing mask keep from spinning when you're stick fighting. It, it helps lock the mask in. It doesn't spin on your face as much. So I'm keeping it, even though it looks like hell, you know. So uh, uh, it, it's been functional. But the uh, I, I was wondering if I really like the way you covered the forest passage by Younger. I, I'd covered that in one of my books. I forget where it was, but it was just so good. I just had to. Uh, I was going to quote it so extensively. I just thought I should review it. I think I reviewed it in three parts. And uh, I just thought it was such a good uh, uh, such a good meditation on how somebody with. Uh, you know, a combative mindset could survive in the modern world. Particularly, I think he was discussing how to behave around people that were involved in political elections at some point in that book. Yeah, yeah. The I think that's his best work, actually, just my view of it. Obviously, people talk about Storm of Steel and and some of the other big ones. But uh, what really I think he hammered home was resistance is mental above all right so this forest passage that he talks about is sort of a journey where someone is reaching a point where they're not afraid of dying they're they're willing to give that kind of sacrifice uh and i agree with him 100 percent there that i think you know a lot of people don't like the direction that we've been going i, I think for good reason um in not just our country but around the world and you ultimately they'll talk about you know oh we're, we've got guns we've got this and all that but everything boils down to a mental thing right so if no one's willing to stick their neck out if people aren't willing to go to prison if people aren't willing to die if then at a certain point it is a little bit of a charade and that to me is the test when you start seeing signs that people are going to sacrifice for for something is when they've crossed that line. You know, maybe you could call it the forest passage, passage. They've crossed the line where these people might do something now. They're actually dangerous instead of just being sort of uh, a danger facade that people put up. Uh, there's, uh, I've written extensively about a little girl named Emma. You know, I think she shows up in like six books. Uh, because her both of her grandfathers died her, before she was born, and I dated her uh, her grandmother, and her dad's just been in and out of prison and rehab facilities, and she's hardly ever seen him. You know, I mean, he, when he could get a hold of her, he would he would take her along as a shield on a drug deal or something like that. So, well, eventually. Uh, I, I was called in a few times just to talk to the guy when he would come around. And, you know, he's really super dangerous to women, uh, but he's just he's also a guy that never had a dad. They used to call him Cubby. He his mother would date guys who didn't like having him around. So he would live in cubby holes under porches. So he's mentally broken. So I would just have to put my hand on his shoulder and talk to him. And, and walk him out. You know, never, never any need for violence when I was around, um, because he knew what I was. Okay, when when we met, and he he thought that I was clinically insane. He was terrified of me when, you know, he he picked me up after a fight one day. I was stick fighting with these guys, and we were getting ice for a party, and he was just, you know, he, I I had a broken hand, 
and and he was just terrified. He's like, "How can you deal with that?" I said, "Well, I, I just kept the electrical tape on it. It'll be okay. It'll be healed like you know, <laughs> in, in a couple of weeks." Well, this guy could have been a welterweight contender, and this guy's half my age. And uh, he uh, once I moved away for most of the year and became a hobo. Uh, he got out of prison and he found out that his ex-girlfriend was married to a guy that makes plenty of money. He's a soccer player. He actually played soccer and baseball at the college level and teaches these sports. He's very athletic, but he's not a fighter. He's terrified of contact sports and uh, he's a smaller guy. And, uh, that uh, baby daddy could just smell that, could smell the fear on him. And he started making threats. And then I was called in to clear it up so that my girlfriend would not have to stroke out while she was beating up this, uh, this young man, because that's who was going to throw hands with this guy. It's going to be grandma. And she was my girlfriend. I wasn't going to let that happen. So after <laughs> I get rid of baby daddy, uh, I talked to, you know, the husband. And, you know, they got a great life, nice suburban house. They both have good jobs. They got a Brady Bunch family they put together. He wants to adopt Emma, and it's great. And even Emma knows that he can't protect her, you know. Uh, and he looked at me, and he said, what am I supposed to do when he comes around? He's like, I can't beat him. And I said, no, you can't beat him. I said, I can't beat him. He just believes I can. Therefore, he loses. OK, the guy's a stud. OK, I said, your job is to be a speed bump. And he was horrified. I said, look, the best guys in the army are like airborne guys are supposed to get dropped on a road and commit suicide, swelling down vehicles. OK, you know, I mean, you're going to get your best guys murdered just to like save the rear echelon people from from getting their stuff blown up. I said, so that's you. I said, he shows up. It's the three of you. She can drive. She needs to leave your ass there getting beat up and stomped. He's, he's a dope fiend. He doesn't have enough gas to kill you. You're going to survive. He's going to run out of gas. He's going to get bored with kicking your body. You're an athlete. You're in good shape. Take a beating. Yeah. And he almost threw up, you know, but uh, he was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I said, it's pretty simple. You don't have to learn how to throw a punch. I said, put your hands up like this. And while he's beating you, you know, hug his neck, hold on to him, grab onto his shirt. You know, that's you can do it. And then your family will be safe. So, you know, just uh, just that. I mean, that's where younger to me uh, reading him. That's what every American man who's not doesn't think of himself as a combatant if he read that and internalized it he could do that it, it's yeah. a removal of in, it's a domestication and removal of instinct yeah. because it's weird to have to think through like it's good to think through it's good to visualize and rehearse and think what would i do if blah 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 but it just feels like a guy like that is really devoid of instinct I found out, I learned this when I was doing security for my son's collectible card tournaments. That guys that I would have been really terrified of when I was just defending myself, going back and forth to work, these big black gangbangers who had weapons and were in groups. Uh, they were terrified of me. 
I was unarmed. They were armed. I was totally outnumbered. Any one of them could have beat me up. But I was just focused on making sure these rich little Asian kids and their pretty mama got to their BMW with their collectible card collection. So all I did was put myself in a way, show them the hand, do not pass, and and then nod to them respectfully after I get the frail little non-combatants in their vehicle and on their way. And <laughs> that just like put an R around me because I wasn't afraid. I was too busy to be afraid of these guys. And I'm not going to let this this beautiful Asian chick anything happened to her i mean you know she might be halfway through a divorce and that could be a girlfriend for me or something if i actually defend her so i'm like yeah i, I could take a beating for her <laughs> you know so just me being that jerk and not caring about my physical safety i wasn't even in good condition i was deep into my management job and you know i was sparring twice a week i'd always have a broken finger or something but I wasn't in competitive condition, but it was just my like, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to make sure these people get to their car. Just being that protective person, uh, it, it puts a shield around you and you don't even know it. It's a problem. I think, uh, Clark, you're also a Spengler reader. Just from what I've gleaned from you, it's like we're at the end of the cycle, right? And half the people who are born today don't have the instincts to protect themselves or protect one another or reproduce or do all sorts of things that are just basic biological functions. Yeah, I think re reproduction, I think, is, is a big one. Um, I'm not going to try to quote it from memory because I'll screw it up, but Spangler had a great point that when in any society, reproduction becomes a question of pros and cons, as opposed to something that just happens. And that sort of unthinking progression of, of course, people are going to have several kids. Once it becomes pros and cons, you're near the end at that point. Uh, Clark uh, was discussing in his book the, uh, the advent of the decadent Hellenistic age and the change in attitude with combat sports. And then, you know, you had that drift into, instead of everybody being a boxer, it's just dominated by a few of these professional boxers that tour around. At that same age, uh, I think it was uh, The Life of Greece, uh, I was reading, Will, Will Durant, they had a, uh, they had a population crash yeah. from uh, the mid 300s BC down to the time of Archimedes, 212, but essentially when the Romans came in and took over that you had these great Greek imperial cities where people had depended on so much from their slaves uh, and just their having a highly a technically superior uh, military model and being able to deal with barbarians and older civilizations. They, they, uh, when Alexander took the, uh, the Greek culture and spread it all over the place. It immediately hollowed itself out as, you know, every farmer ended up becoming almost like a mayor in some Asian town or something like that. And then it immediately hollowed out and they started hiring mercenaries and, you know, bar making contracts with barbarians. Yeah. And the other thing that you see from the, the Rome example is that the incentives don't really work at some point. You know, even as early as Augustus, they began creating laws to incentivize Romans to have kids, and it just didn't work. And they also had a series of 
uh, I think they call them the five good emperors. There were a series yeah. of quality emperors that they had. And during that entire time, despite the attempt to create pro, you know, incentives and then punishments for people that weren't reproducing, the it didn't work nonetheless. You know, and I think Spangler's point is that at a certain point, the society has kind of played itself out. Its energy is gone, just like a as a human gets older, a per, an individual gets older, they can't bring themselves to do certain things that they could easily do when they, without thinking when they were young. And I think that that has shown to be the case that at a certain point, what is scary about it is that you can't even incentivize it and it, it just goes away. The desire to reproduce. Uh, the five grand emperors you men mentioned. So after a century of civil war and crisis, Nerva, who's an older guy, uh, takes the purple and he chooses a su successor, Trajan, who's the best, most capable soldier in the empire. Trajan chooses a complementary guy, the best engineer and builder, uh, or Trajan chooses Hadrian. Then Hadrian, who knew he wasn't the best guy, I think he even broke his slave philosopher's leg, uh, Epictetus. He chooses the most moral guy in the empire, Antonius Pius, on a condition that he also, that, that Antonius actually adopts Marcus Aurelius, who is the most promising young philosophical mind. These five guys, how weird is that? Five different guys making these selfless decisions over their secession over about an 80-year period. No country gets to see that level of stewardship. I think I'm really thinking that the reason why Marcus Aurelius threw it away by going back to a hereditary monarchy and letting his scumbag son uh, ascend the throne as a teenager was because he probably saw that this is uh, this is just doomed. If you if you can string together like the five most selfless rulers of this place that owns everything that's worth owning and they can't grow it and they actually lose a little bit. I, I think Aurelius in the end, when he, of course, he made the decision when he was sick and probably dying from exposure because he's a frail guy up on the German frontier. I think he just despaired. It, he, he wasn't going to be able to continue to fight against this historical weight. You know, that the, they still hadn't, the, they were relying more and more on allied barbarians and they were having a hard time convincing their own people to reproduce. You know, so it was, uh, that's, uh, that's probably the best example of, uh, the fact that it, a nation's going to go through a cycle and that certain downturns cannot be affected any more than to delay them. Yeah. yeah we're never going to have five good emperors here, right? Oh, we're going to have a, it's going to be a clown parade until the end. And uh, if they couldn't get things moving in a positive direction with the five good emperors, and what hope do we have of creating pros and cons? To it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it would be like you took the five best American presidents and you put them all together. Okay, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like <laughs> in order, and they still couldn't stop. The decay. So we're going to talk about George Washington now. <laughs> this yeah, is. That... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, right. I like George, George more and more every year. He beat his own slaves. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, that that's uh, whenever I want to try to lose followers on Twitter, <laughs> I start posting about George and getting people all pissed off. But, but you know, George has some good qualities, actually. You know, the I have been sort of ranting lately against Jefferson, who I, I think Jefferson was a coward, to be honest with you. Uh, and at least George had these good qualities, too. I think he was probably had a heavy hand with his slaves, including his white slaves. Uh, but Jefferson, I think, is one of these guys where I think he's been, you know, just sort of a, a snake-like figure, really. As a smart guy, a bit of a snake, a coward that now has been vaulted into this rarefied air of we're supposed to worship these people. Clark, so, you have a great quote. You said the danger of bookworms. I don't remember the context, but it's in your book somewhere. The danger of bookworms. It's kind of like yeah. that for Jefferson. But yeah, Washington is uh, one of Clark's favorite topics on Twitter. And he found uh, that great letter from Washington about, you know. Yeah, it was an ad. Yeah, the newspaper for, ad. <laughs> yeah, two, two white slaves that, and this was at the same time, uh, what was it, around April? I'm trying to, I might get the month wrong, but it was around April 1775, the same time that Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen are raiding Fort uh, Ticonderoga and risking their lives. At the same time that's happening, George is looking for his white slaves that have run off. Uh, one of them repeatedly, William Webster, was a repeat runaway, and he was putting an ad in the paper, and uh, he got him back. But he was doing, while everyone else was starting to fight the war or whatever, that's what that's what George was up to. And at the same time, also, he was gambling heavily because uh, they had records of his um, accounting entries. He was doing a lot of gambling during that period, too. Uh, so it, just an interesting figure. I know this is going to be, it's sort of a litmus test, right? Can you make fun of George Washington or are you too upbeat? <laughs> It's so, so fun. Can you send me those ads, when I like, have it, yeah. In some kind of form I could it's, read. Oh, hey. it's right off of the Library of Congress website. <laughs> yeah, this is unassailable <laughs> evidence. I mean, it, it's literally Library of Congress type stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it's pretty so, funny. There's, uh, there's an attractive white-skinned black woman who uh, I saw giving a talk on PBS, and then I skimmed her book at Barnes & Noble without reading it because it was it was pretty simple what I was looking for. Well, she did a story about George Washington's black female slave who escaped from George Washington and got married. Now, and she points out that in Philadelphia at this time, it was against the law to hold a Negro for more than six months. This is yes. in Pennsylvania where you could hold a German for 31 years. Okay. Yes. If his parents die on the way over on the boat, then you own that cracker for 31 years, okay? So what Washington would do, I mean, he's such a Clinton-esque character. It's like, I like him because he'd be like Bill Clinton if he had a club and he would beat you with it, right? Instead of just being this, like, you know, weird, erotic sex fiend, right? So he, uh, he would send his slaves back to Maryland after four months. And they would back basically he would send them unsupervised back over the state line to refresh them, like to put it like the meat manager I used to have that used to erase the out of date date and then like put a new date on it. okay, <laughs> and then bring it back. So this woman took advantage of that and her and her fiance went up to New Hampshire and her her marriage announcement in New Hampshire 
posted in the same gazette where Washington's uh, ad for her recapture and return was placed, which was really cool. I mean, so he's a character. I mean, that's, uh, you know, he and I can I can just see it, you know, with the. uh, And I'll tell you, the other thing that uh, is a good litmus test is the Jumonville incident. Where oh. he helped kick off the he helped kick off the Seven Years' War, but what's funny about that is if you read a conventional kind of Barnes and Noble type of biography of him, they completely gloss over this incident, which to me was one of the more revealing things about um, about him and his ambition and his character of what happened there. But the essentially there's this Indian uh, called the Half King, I think was his name, yes. was leading leading these, you know, at the time, British subjects through the woods. The French were were in the area as well. And there was supposed to be some sort of diplomatic contact. But the the gist of it is they end up getting in a firefight, I, I think more of an ambush of the French. And in the course of that, the lead French officer, after the fighting has stopped, um, is killed. And then what exactly happened? And, you know, I think the half king killed him. But what happened in the sequence of events uh, leading up to that is unclear. But what jumped out to me as a guy with a military background is this to me seemed like the idiot lieutenant who doesn't know what he's doing and is getting railroaded by the half king who's kind of serving as, you know, maybe like a, a grizzled uh staff non-commissioned officer here and then sort of leading things how he wants to lead it and but you get in a situation where he uh, then george ends up getting uh, besieged uh shortly thereafter then he has to sign a document which he then claimed he didn't understand the document or the translation was bad uh, where he admitted that he had assassinated the french officer and then um, he kind of went back on his word, I think, too, of what he was supposed to do as far as turning himself in. But the whole sequence of events, if you read a conventional biography, is completely twisted and glossed over, despite the fact that it's very easy to find the, uh, the versions of what happened that are in much more detail. But if you go to like a David McCullough type Barnes and Noble book, you'll get none of these things. The uh... So at Fort Necessity, Washington's actually captured by Jamonville's older brother, who's a captain. Jamonville was the lieutenant who was killed by the half king, apparently. And he promised to come back and face charges. Washington did. And of course, he didn't. Um, but the. Uh, um, he admitted to being an assassin, I think, was what it was. The, then he said he didn't understand it. Translation was bad. It was raining. It was under his command and it was his guide that did it. You know, and he promised that he would come back and, you know, stay in trial. Uh, I think the half king was dead within a year uh, and it's not known what killed him. Uh, I suspect that he was probably a half British British agent, which would have been pretty common that where he was, he uh, where he he was as one of these uh, chiefs, of some scrap belt refugee Indian camp uh at the most southeastern French depot and everything, uh, it, but yeah, it, it's as if like you'd had a it's it's like you had a French foreign legion sergeant like acting as a guide in Africa, 
you know, against the Chinese for an American lieutenant, you know, and then the Chinese officer ends up getting murdered. I mean, <laughs> it sets off this big continental war. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah. There's a guy named Gilchrist was involved in part of that too, and his journals out there. Yeah, I think so, I, I think it's a Library of Congress document. Also, I, I think I remember getting this stuff for you, James. Some time ago. Oh yeah, I re I remember doing that. It yeah. was it was in one of the Plantation America books, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, Washington. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe maybe uh, I I had a little stomach for Washington four or five years ago, but the worse everybody seems from that class, the further I go into that period, looking at the period documents. You know, I mean, he's uh, he, he towers less and less as a scumbag and more is just like a bigger, greedier guy. Yeah, you know, right. it's, it's kind of the same as the rest of them. I'll chime in here as a homeschooling mom. OK, I have these books that uh, our co-op made me buy. And it's like, can you see this? George Washington. These are the called the Beautiful Feet books by Ingrid and Edgar Perrin Dallaire. Dallaire's, the Dallaire's did really good Greek myths. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and they did this like little series of very cute books about our early American. And so when you do this with kids, you're like, here's Abraham Lincoln, everybody's favorite. So Benjamin Franklin there, they don't have a cartoon illustration of him at the Helen Brimstone Club spanking a London ben, hooker. Ben Dave. and his bitches. <laughs> no, they didn't have room for that one here. So it's it's a very interesting process. Oh, this is we can we can agree on this. This is a good one. Buffalo Bill. Uh, you you know, <laughs> it's so interesting, like going over it with kids. All the curriculum material you can find is like Abraham Lincoln was the most honest boy. He was he just was a, a incredible hero from early times. And, you know, it's like so we have, uh, you know, I, I give my kids these materials and we go over them and we do all the normal stuff. And then we have like, OK, now it's mommy's time. Mommy's going to tell you about some other stuff <laughs> that happened and well what's funny about it is it's changed over time this is another one that i'll, I'll get people coming out, if i post about this people coming out of the woodwork i get uh irate about it but it's changed over time too right so in the 19th century there was you probably i don't even remember the name of it but there's a famous sculpture that was done in the mid 19th century of george washington where he's in the robe and he's doing uh, but they found like it so Roman ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they found it so ridiculous that they had they first put it out and it was ridiculed so badly as being just absurd that they ended up just moving it to another spot and they ended up putting it away. And even in Moby Dick, uh, there are some sort of uh, oblique references to Washington, like Queequeg is compared is called sort of a cannibalistic version of George Washington. And there's these sort of little <laughs> jokes making light of him. And then you get to the 20th century and, you know, you get to the Mount Rushmore and the sort of progressive era when they decided to really ramp up the idea that we're in and we have to have a proper imperial history. You have to have proper deification of our early, you know, our, our forebears. And the whole thing just changed. It was, uh, I've noticed, 
the semantic academic shift that you can pretty much pin down to 1831 to 1848, where uh, uh, new republished works that came out in the 1600s are heavily annotated and the translations are corrupted to change the meaning of the words. It's where you start to see indentured servant is yeah. in the 1830s. Okay, so this is a new academic term. The Smithsonian was developing itself, wanted to challenge or become regarded as a legit uh, modern Western institution. And they basically ran a sweepstakes amongst various academics and even political grifters to hurry up and solidify exactly what American history was, and particularly American prehistory, uh, how you looked at things before uh, the revolution. And it was a very quick amateur job to come up with an American prehistory in a 10 year period that took 20 years and it had to be poured in concrete, set in stone as soon as it was proposed. You can imagine trying to do a textbook like this. It would be like you would just be cutting a bunch of newspaper clippings and making a textbook out of it, and then you can't change it. You know, it's kind of uh, the way they scrap built uh, American prehistory in the 1830s and 40s uh, to the point where I, I read a book on slave rebellions that just all about African Americans, a thin red academic book, and uh, I got a lot of good sources out of it. And he discussed how the dean of slave historians, I think it was Absaker that did uh, a, a book that I, I relied really heav heavily on, on African-American slavery. I forget the title of it now. Uh, he pointed out that it was not regarded as useful or productive to study the institution of slavery before 1830 because it would just muddy the waters. Well, it's quite obvious that things drastically changed in the 1830s. Yeah. Uh, I, so, um, that, and the academics are coloring it, and I'm even, at the very same time, this fellow, William Wells Brown, was releasing his memoir. He's an escaped mulatto slave, and he's got five accounts of white slaves in there. This ends up getting washed out of the black studies recycling of his work in the 1960s and 70s that I originally read, but I could tell there were gaps in the text. So Wynne got me the original, and sure enough, at the same time that they were inventing this cult of voluntary indentured servitude for the betterment of mankind in the 1830s and 40s, uh, this guy was still writing about, you know, uh, white kids being trafficked and sold. Uh, uh, that, that he was involved in. He was he was the guy that would put the shoe polish on the gray hairs of the old black guy so he could be sold as a younger model. OK. And he was also in charge of, you know, making sure that the little white boy smiled while he was playing cards before he got sold and sold because he actually worked for a slave dealer at the very same time at the academics were they were actually whitewashing things in real time. I mean, this stuff was still going on and they were already scrubbing it from the past record as it was still going on in that period. So the 1830s and 40s uh, is basically as far deep as I've been able to trace, like the, the use of the term colony and colonial instead of plantation. And 
and, and also the indentured servant instead of just servant or, or slave or whatever. So the, the different invented academic terms in America kind of starts right there. So I suppose uh, like you were talking about the statue, there were still people out there that weren't having it because they had a recent history with yeah. us. Okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's just amazing to me how much the things change there. Like for instance, you have like the Lincoln Memorial, you have, what is it, like an 18 foot size uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln? Or I think if you show that to someone, an American from the early 19th century, I think they would find it bizarre. I think they would find the uh, Mount Rushmore to be bizarre, that this sort of deification process doesn't come across when you read the works of people from you know that earlier era that it, it just seems there was a transformation at some point. That in ancient Greece, so that uh, 300s BC and 200s BC, a period you were discussing in the King of All Things, where the masculine culture gets degenerated and yeah, professionalism creeps in and everything. At, in that period, the term for slave in the Hellenistic world changed from a word that was based on house to a word that was based on the currency. I think they both began with a D. The, the, the Greek term for slave is disassociated from house, and it's, atta- it, it's, it's attached to the word for money, and this is at the very same oh, it's time. Doula. Okay. Doula is one of them, yeah. Because we call that now in women's worlds, we call that um, a woman who comes and helps with labor. No. Yeah. Okay. And and the same uh, at the very same time, uh, it just stuck out to me because I was looking for the the evidence of ancient boxing. Uh, The evidence at that time for uh, broad participation boxing is no longer evident because that was all it was like on tableware. And at the same at the same time that this, you know, you know, that the word for slave is changing. Uh, artwork is becoming monumental and it's it, it's no longer uh, household goods and, and small little civic things. It's all real big. You get this imperial phase uh, that's reflected, you know, from, from slave to monument uh, all the way through the culture. And it's kind of interesting that the American monumental culture, you know, comes in the, in the mid 1800s there. Yeah. Now, the you know obviously the country changed greatly around the civil war time period but it's but what's remarkable is how this is so ingrained in people's brains that they'll you know you can talk about covid and whatever conspiracy theory you want on any sort of modern subject moon landing whatever but if you start talking about what is manifestly and obviously and unassailably true about things that happen with our quote founding fathers that people get so wrapped up. I mean, it really is a civic religion among a certain strain of conservative that they it's, you know, it's like you're assailing their God, really. I found it almost impossible to discuss history with history buffs. uh, Mostly guys I met in the wargaming world uh, that predates World War II. And so one of the things I think you did really good in your book is you used, I think it was five martial examples, uh, and they were from the Vietnam War. 
you know, which uh, the, the way you covered it makes me suspect that you, you maybe used to be a military officer. OK, I don't know. I don't know anything about your personal history, but uh, I was wondering if you had read the book Platoon Commander, written by a man who commanded a platoon in Vietnam, I think in 68, 69. Mm, I don't know that one, no. It's kind of like if you read the old classic company commander that was written by a guy that was commanding uh, an American rifle company during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, that was an old military book club selection. It, uh, it, it was along the same lines. It was just about what it was like to be a lieutenant and uh, and to be in Indian country. And it uh, that. I don't know. It just reminds me of our discussion about Washington, the half king and Jamonville and being out in this forested domain as a, you know, a civilized lieutenant. And then, you know, the people you're fighting and then you've got, you know, there's not like a real connection to the guys on you because you're a college guy or an aristocrat and they're, you know, what they are. Yeah, it actually, it, the Jumonville incident with Washington, it kind of reminds me you of the movie Platoon where that Vietnam movie, Oliver Stone, I think, was the, the director of that, where the movie is really kind of about the uh, a couple of the sergeants. You know, you have uh, Sergeant Barnes, and then you have uh, the one played by Willem Dafoe, whose name I forget forget right now, the character's name. But And the lieutenant is irrelevant, really, right? So that is... Uh, reminded me of George Washington on this incident here where he just seemed completely over his head. And then he's trying to sort of somewhat dishonorably unwind it after the fact and then recreate history on, uh, on the narrative of what happened. So uh, it's just an interesting thing. But you can't talk about these people without people coming out of the woodworks. You, know, you don't know what you're talking about. The, you know, the when I posted the Jefferson thing, I had people responding about how could you say this about the man who wrote the Declaration? Of <laughs> and you know, but the fact is, the, the British were trying to find him, right? He was the governor of Virginia. The British were trying to find him, and he spent all of his time fleeing and running to the point where his contemporaries, right? They were aware that he wrote the Declaration of his contemporaries for the rest of his life. We're calling him the coward of Carter's Mountain because he fled to the remote. But now, but he was an ambitious guy, a smart guy, and he got, you know, and frankly, he did a couple of good things as president, I think. But the that was, you know, what the manifest character of, of some of these people were. But, you know, you can't talk about it. So anything you can't talk about, I find interesting. And inherent. Of course. Yeah. He was, uh, Jefferson, to me, was a prototypical technocrat. You know, that he was actually uh, uh, a creature of the Enlightenment and he was going to find the best way to do everything. He was obviously a genius. I did, uh, in one of the Plantation America books, I did go over uh, the Declaration of Independence. I think, I think I found two statements in there that weren't obvious lies. Okay, but basically, the, most of the document is just a pack of lies that, that pe rural people at the time would have known it was a pack of lies. So I, I concluded it was written for urban people. You know, it was written for people in the cities. <laughs> I don't know. But if it, I want like the people, the people I live with in what, many parts of the country, I would never give them that book, you know. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... It's really an interesting thing when you look back at some of that stuff. So one of my favorite subjects to kind of get under people's skin. 
Well, it's it's really effective. I mean, it starts here with these all the little all the hagiographic hey, uh, materials that we have to deliver to little kids, um, and and for me it's eye opening as we I go through like starting from kindergarten. What are what am I expected to show my kids? And of course, yeah. in homeschooling, it's amplified for the most part, right? Homeschooling has like some hippies, some real extreme like unschooling type hippie people, but the bulk of homeschoolers are these type of really red blooded Americans who love the constitution the founding documents and all these guys and and i think james you pointed out that the early 19th century is when the united states went into empire mode right it's right at the turn of the century that it really well of course it's it's a pretty obvious imperial move to try to displace you know the sick man in western europe uh, spain which was was not difficult but when it really happens and you can see it in letters to editors from California magazines and newspapers where people are writing into the newspaper discussing the horrible letters they're getting from their sons who are serving in the Philippines and are being made to exterminate noncombatants in this uh, brutal war of attrition there. It's not something that Americans were comfortable with. They were apparently comfortable with you know, beating the crap out of the Spanish and who wouldn't be, but, uh, they did not seem to be comfortable with, uh, sending their sons overseas to be an army of occupation somewhere. And that was, you know, 1901 to 1903. I mean, we did get the 45 APC out of that war. I mean, yeah. uh, so, I mean, that's maybe worth it right there. Uh, I got a lot of stick fighting buddies that are descendants of, you know, Filipinos that came over to Virginia Beach, uh, you know, uh, in the early 1900s. So we got some good stuff out of it. A lot of medical staff in the country. I think that was a didn't we have the first presidential assassination around that time period, too, if I remember right. Uh, Link, well, Lincoln was. No, Lincoln, obviously, yeah. I guess. And then we, there was Garfield. I don't remember. Um, but even, of course, the Civil War played a huge role in this federal consolidation of power. Um, and as, as again, we see, where we teach children about the pilgrims who went to Massachusetts, but we also talk a little bit Jamestown, and Jamestown actually happened first, and it was like. We have two origin stories, right? One for the north and one for the south, and we have to kind of pretend they're both they're both origin stories. We we teach them both. It's uh, I I always find that interesting when we have to go. Through. I've been through. I have two kids. I've been through it twice now. So I always like people wouldn't notice that, you know, if they're not in the mode of noticing weird things about history. That right. we have two founding myths for our country, a northern and a southern one. Yeah, and it's funny, it's only only two were permitted when it was a dozen, and the uh, academic treatments on it tend to be why Jamestown failed and why Plymouth Rock succeeded. Right. You know, so the academic slant just totally takes it to a northern origin story and, uh, <laughs> that uh, it, it's literally made it impossible to discuss American history with a normal American, and I think that's the point. Yeah. I think that's why you get there, where the, the keepers of the history are going to just be a, a small group of people that can debate certain fine points amongst themselves. But that, that that's not going to filter out, you know, amongst the masses. 
and I think the other thing that jumps out is you start to get an appreciation for maybe some of the bad guys, maybe not being so bad. Like my, I'm not an Aaron Burr guru, but I get the sense that he might have been a decent guy. Um, you know, certainly he fought in the Revolutionary War, which half of them didn't. Uh, the and I, I think there's certain characters in history that jump out that have been sort of labeled as uh, these horrible figures when, in fact, maybe there were some redeeming values there uh, for him. So Burr is one that I've become a little bit more interested in lately, too, uh, just because he's sort of, uh, you know, really sort of a, a negative figure at this point. That uh, uh, The two. Uh, OK, there were two war heroes that were American that died as drunks in British territory. Uh, there were more. OK, Simon Gurdy was my favorite. OK, but the guy that formed the Army Rangers originally, Robert Rogers, major, uh, stayed loyal to England even after the English uh, screwed him. Uh, and he dies a drunk in England after being literally the only decorated, the, the, the only war hero. He, he was imprisoned for charges of debt that when he borrowed against his commanding officer's account to feed his men who were starving to death. And the commanding officer didn't like him because he thought he was afraid he wanted his job or was ambitious, so he wouldn't pay for it. So Rogers gets locked up in a New York or Boston prison. A company or a battalion of redcoats actually freed him, even though he was a colonial uh, militia ranger because he was the only war hero they had. He was the only one that won a battle. <laughs> okay. And, uh, that happens to him. And then Benedict Arnold uh, was five times the fighting man of the next best guy in the revolution. I mean, literally was uh, uh, he was the five best war heroes on the American side. And he's by stages betrayed by the proto-American aristocracy until he feels like he's already been betrayed. So he's going to go back to being loyal uh, to the king. And he gets painted as a bad guy. So I think subconsciously this shows up. And I guess what you use for your handle, the last pirate, is just piracy is really romantic in American, in the American mindset. And I think it kind of goes to that. I was even playing cards and listening to Irish shanty pirate music that people are still recording now. And my favorite one, the chorus is, uh, strike your colors, you English dog. You know, we're, I'm not going to die like a dog. <laughs> and it's all these anti-English, uh, yeah. you know, it's all Gaelic. I wanted it's, to talk like, about your slave name at some point, James, because yeah. you, you do maintain this fire against the English, and yeah. I admire Wailing. you for that. <laughs> so it's funny. So all the whaling songs. It's so good songs. to keep important, keep long grudges. It's a it's yeah. a strong important well, skill. Well, it's the sweetest person I ever met in my life was my grandma Lafon, and when she was blind and knitting in the back room at Aunt Marie's place, and I'd come down and see her every Wednesday, she'd give me a hug and she'd say, "Remember, my honey, we hate the English because they sold us to the French." <laughs> <laughs> but did, did she hate the French too? Or not as much. Oh, oh yeah, that was just beyond. <laughs> that was even That was worse. the enemy. But, okay. you know, we hate the English because they're traitors because they sold oh. us to the French. All right. And, uh, and I never kind of really understood this. I understood looking into my family history that almost all the Wafans lived in Illinois. 
and there were only a handful that came from Fall River, Massachusetts. And uh, my grandpa LaFon called her Roy because that was her last name. So his father and her father had been sold on uh, the British Home Children program as servants that they'd have to work till they're 18 or 21 uh, for French Canadian families. And then they would be free. And of course, a lot of these kids got beat up. Some committed suicide. Some of them were beat to death. Uh, they didn't get paid for their work. Uh, and a lot of them were abducted. Uh, if they were orphans, they were just straight away sold. But some of these kids weren't even orphans. Now, uh, in 2002, we were doing a benefit to uh, keep a martial arts school open. Frank Gilbert, who uh, was not my boxing coach, but he became my coaching coach. That's the guy that taught me how to coach boxing. You know, he informed me I was too old to box anymore. I should be an active coach and just still spar with the guys. Well, uh, he said, who do we have for you to box? And I said, well, we got this monster that just showed up. Mark LaFond is one of three LaFond brothers from Illinois that moved to Baltimore. So we're the only LaFonds in Baltimore. You know, my little branch of the family, uh, my cousin Johnny and me, and, and then these guys. Well, I'm looking at this guy after Frank loves this up. I was like, good God, I'm wading in the shallow end of the LaFond gene pool. But in retrospect, it's really, uh, it, you know, my inferior Britannic genetics, you know, going up against, you know, this was, I was just sold into this family. This, these are the guys. Uh, French lumberjacks. This is the guy that would have been beating my ass when <laughs> I fell down behind the plow. Okay, so. He chased me around for four rounds and, you know, bloodied my nose and beat me up a little bit. And I survived. I was like, yeah, I can imagine working on a farm with this guy. He looked like he was carved out of iron. Right. He was, he was a wrestler. And he's like the littlest of the three brothers. I would have been their little slave. You know, if we go back in the time machine. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I couldn't even run away from these people. <laughs> yeah, this is a horror show. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, comically, it, it, it's kind of funny. So I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, so that uh, from the one of my sons got the genetic thing done, and it it looks like I'm half English, quarter Irish, and a quarter German, and it makes sense because uh, uh, my mother's half of the family in Baltimore they came from Germans that came over in the 1860s, and I even had pictures of those people. And they married these hot-looking, they were these big, rich German guys. They were fairly wealthy. They started factories, and they moved over here with uh, mutton shop sideburns. And they were marrying these cute Irish chicks who were the Kirbys and the Quades, who used to be the McQuades. And I found an account of one of the McQuade men dying in Maryland in the 1750s and his children being sold. And he was a descendant of a McQuaid that I think came over uh, on the second ship to come over from England into Maryland. So I actually, you know, I have about almost 400 years of ancestry in Maryland uh, from the Irish side. But, you know, half is just English orphan kids that got sold to Canadian French. And then the other half is the, you know. Which um, was the other Catholics. Which was happening well after the end of the Civil War. It continued. Oh yeah, there's guys my age, you know, that committed. You know, there was guys in the 1970s that committed suicide uh, because of despairing. And now these these kids living in these shanty towns in South Africa that are eventually going to get slaughtered by Zulu hordes. Uh, they were a lot of them were just white trash that was left over from that British homeschool. 
uh, home child program, you know, which I didn't find out about until Lynn started hurling this stuff at me. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was an eye opener. All right. We were talking about the cover of your book, Clark. It's got a, um, an image at the lower third of this uh, helmet with the ace of spades there. Discussed it towards the end of the book, which was a nice touch because it bookended the cover. Yeah, that's the death card. That, that's a Vietnam helmet. Uh, actually, the design of that helmet was the same for a very long time, I think, from World War II-ish to uh, about 1980, early 80s, when they went to that Kevlar helmet. Uh, but one, I think it's a pretty helmet. And then two, that card in there is uh, a very interesting point. I think that came out of the Vietnam War. Um, you know, the death card there where they attempted to do a psychological operation on the Vietnamese, but then it ended up being kind of a symbol that guys, our guys took um, for themselves, sort of to craft a little bit of a warrior identity and not take the victim attitude that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in this war and I'm a victim and that's all I am. That uh, I was with uh, Jake, who died two years ago, we were working on a game called Feudal Estates. That, and he described the, the terror deck to me where the, the 52 card deck we played with was extracted from. And I was surprised to find out that spades in medieval times used to be called swords. And it was the highest ranking suit. And it makes sense. And it was just fascinating when I read in Clark's books last night. These guys in the trenches in World War One were using them. Okay, we're using these cards, and then the thing in Vietnam. And if you think about it, once the warrior class kind of gets displaced by the managerial class, and they're fighting these industrial wars, uh, you've now the swords. You know, you're you're now consecrated into a spade. You're now digging a hole to keep from getting cut in half by a machine gun or something. And I just think I just really like the way that felt in my mind. That uh, that almost set like a a 300 year newsreel kind of showing where the you know you're going from uh, being on a horse and fighting with a sword down to uh, digging with a spade and and ducking and. And, and moving around so uh it, it kind of I, I had wondered why it evolved uh, to be called spades and i was wondering if maybe just uh having to do entrenchments from the 1860s on uh is what brought this terminology change around from swords to spades or did it happen earlier and if it happened earlier in the early modern period then it's an even more uh it's almost like a prophetic thing you know, yeah, so I, yeah, I don't know that, actually. That's an interesting question. The which, What kind of jumps out to me, though, is that spade shape, as it's shown on the playing card, and I have no idea whether this is an actual connection, it seems like a stylized, like almost like a ceremonial spear point, um, if you look at it, that... So I'm wondering if there's a connection there, too, because you have another yeah. simple weapon. Yeah, and um, I think it's a... I think all those words are related just from a linguistic point of view, a spade, a spear. Yeah. And there, the, isn't there yeah. an ancient weapon that's like spada or? Well, a spada would be the Spanish. Yeah. yeah. Sword. Spatha. They're, yeah. They're, they're, they're related. So, so the, uh, so the highest ranking card suit was spades. Traditionally hearts is number two. 
and that was called cups. So those would be like the drinking companions. Those would be Beowulf's buddies. The spades would be Beowulf. The hearts suit, that would be, you know, all the guys in the mead hall. Uh, the diamonds was called pentacles. That's basically your merchant class cabalists. When you think of it, it's really cool. And clubs really means uh, clovers. It means like the people of the land, like the rural people that still have like old gods and old magics. You know, so it gives a lot of Western history kind of layered there when you look at the card decks that way. And uh, I was uh, I was fascinated by how in your book you mixed uh, uh, old pagan readings, okay, and their theology and philosophy with the Bible. Uh, most people, it's either or. It's either you know, BAP will just be citing you know the old pagan stuff, or you know, more conservative people would only be citing the scripture and the gospel, and what would not tie any of these threads together so i i, I particularly like that yeah thank you the the uh, you're actually the only person that has publicly commented on the cover and nailed it from the start uh, and this was back when you'd only read about 10 pages uh of the book so i was impressed with that too that you know the idea i'm trying to get across there is as you noted is uh something about capturing an individualized warrior sense within the sort of mechanized uh, machine process that, uh, and I think the Vietnam War is a good, a good example of that, and the card I felt was a good example of that. But, but somehow you saw that right away and nailed it, where no one else has even commented on it. So I was impressed. Well, impressed. I had, I did read like forty pages of the book, but what I, since I've written a lot of books, uh, the, uh, it's, it's like letting the dog unpack your groceries. He's just going to grab the steak and drag it into a corner. And that's basically what I do. I just find out where the steak is and, <laughs> and, and go for it. So, so how important so I was like, is yeah. that this, you know, it's called the death card. So how important is the proximity to death for the warrior or for the man? We, you mentioned in the warm up, we talked about Robert E. Howard. I wanted to ask you, Clark, I know we're running a little short on time, but I wanted to ask you if you'd ever consider writing fiction. And uh, I also had this Canada thing as like just a current events, how Canada is now industrializing suicide. And of course, Robert E. Howard is famous for having committed suicide. But to me, um, I'm also dealing with a family member who is at the end of life due to severe illness. But, you know, the proximity to death and whether people we naturally turn away from death or how we like cultivate of course we know the romans would have their memento mori you know how you cultivate how you stay close to it but still enjoy life and get the most out of it you know so that's what i, was, I kind of a downer but <laughs> I yeah see well, that. i mean to me it's a little bit of the flip side of it whenever you talk about any kind of warrior culture you're going to be talking about that there's a death aspect to it I think that's going to be true, not just for Europeans, but for, you know, Asians and other cultures where you see that death is always going to be the flip side of that. I think this also gets back to the forest passage is issue from Younger, who is one of the more prominent warriors of the 20th century, you know, going four years through the First World War, getting wounded seven times. Um, you know, it's interesting, the guy that saw a ton of death, right? Not just handfuls here and there. He saw death at the mechanized scale. So, and 
when he writes Forest Passage, what he found to be important is sort of the coming face to face with the fear of death. I think that is an essential thing to it. It's not, I think it's even more important than any kind of physical prowess. I think, again, the mental state and your ability to go to that place, I think, is essential for, and it's something that has to be constantly worked at in this soft age that we live in where we're pampered. I'm sitting here drinking a cup of coffee, you know, chatting with you all. It's so divorced from um, the harsh life and death circumstance that I think we constantly have to be pushing ourselves to not uh, have that sense ruined in us. That's at the mechanized scale. That should be the title of the podcast line. That was, that was an excellent summation. <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts. You've actually, James, I know have written on on that particular subject too a lot. And you've talked about that for yourself, frankly. You know, what are your lines where you would be willing to cross that line? Um, I know you've talked about prison in the context of that, and you've uh, given some thoughts on that too. But I think every man needs to confront that issue of what are my lines and what are my uh, thresholds? And that's so much more important than your skill with a firearm or your ability to throw a punch or even take a punch that have you had that sort of confrontation with yourself? Uh, people, the, the most common thing you will hear from people when they're thinking about protecting themselves or others or taking violent action is that they will insist that nobody can ever know what they will do under a stressful situation until it happens and they go into it. And that has not been my experience. I've always done what I've wanted to do, okay, under these types of stressful situations. Not always. Sometimes I beat myself up. I'm over 90% on doing what I want to do. Sometimes I'll delay it and get aggressive too late. Sometimes I'll botch it. The timing will be off. Uh, but I always know I'm going to stab that guy if he touches me. I mean, that, that's an absolute, and I've done it before, you know, and that, and I knew that before I did it. I knew I would do that because I know how to go into my own brain and wire it and guarantee that I'm going to, that in this case, that's what I'm going to do. And I think the reason why most people can't make that statement that I know what I'm going to do. I know I'm never going to eat my dog. I will starve to death before I eat my dog. I'm sorry. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Starving is not difficult. Okay. It's it's like one of the easiest things you can do. Um, and somebody tried to tell me one time, yeah, you would eat that dog if you're hungry enough. I was like, no, no. <laughs> you know, I would kill you and eat you first before, <laughs> before I would eat my dog. But that um, people have not had that conversation with themselves and they've they've not made a promise that okay, you know, if somebody hits my wife, I'm going to kill them. They, they, they've never gone there and said that's it. That there's just like a certain thing, you know, for me, my grandchildren. That's that's a deal breaker. Every deal I've made with myself is off the table if I find out that some adult did something to them. Okay, I'm not there for them most of the time. The least I could be is their angel of death. Okay, and it goes with the. I had a conversation with a girlfriend whose granddaughter's father is getting out of prison, and he was sentenced to 20 years for beating, raping, strangling, and discarding the body of his girlfriend. He only did two years. He's getting out. Well, he knows me. I know him. And that's another one of those deal-breaker things. 
you know, if he crosses that line. So that's the line. You have you make some external lines as far as people you put your protection around, and then you have to make your own internal lines. And for me, it's just getting arrested. I'm not going to, you know, they'll have to catch me drunk or asleep to arrest me. You know, I'd have to be passed out sick. Uh, I'd rather, you know, commit suicide by cop than get arrested. And that's just me. It's just a little promise I made myself. And that's all. And it's kind of helped me just back away from tons of other trouble. I was like, no, I made this promise. I'm going to do this. If some cop puts their hands on me, they might be a perfectly decent person. I'm stabbing them in the neck. So if this can go, if this situation here with this knucklehead can get me anywhere near that, that infamy where my whole family is going to be humiliated because dad's a cop killer. Okay. Uh, then I'm going to walk away. So actually that violent promise to myself about cops, you know, that makes like all other types of violence just totally non-starters for me. I won't do it. I, I treat cops like, oh, you know, they're like, when they meet me, I, they don't get better treatment than anybody from anybody than they get from me because I know if things go wrong, I have to kill them, you know, because that's how I wired myself. And I know what that's what the deal is. You know, it's my, you know, internally assured self-destruction button. You know, that's all. Yeah, so that's, that's made things easy. There's an interface there with the point of the honor, right? So honor, you could kind of think of as a notion of preserving your integrity. And I don't mean integrity in the sense of, you know, the modern way, but it's sort of the integrity in the sense of your, your wholeness or conception of yourself, right? So when that is punctured or injured by another person, the response to that all plays into honor, right? So the, and what is interesting about it is, these lines that you're talking about, you know, as the sense of honor drops in our, as we progress in a civilization or move forward in a civilization, the those lines start disappearing, right? I think most people still have a line with their kids. I think there are a lot of people that would yes. do things for their kids. Uh, you know, I put myself in that category. And then you start to, to the lines that used to exist with insults are gone now, right? Because like, look at my favorite president, Andrew Jackson, you know, fought, uh, you know, he was a guy that fought duels, deadly duels. So the and what were they over? They were over what we would consider trifles today. Right. This little petty insults about your, you know, his wife was uh, some innuendo against his wife caused the duel. And the people don't go to the mat today on that. Like when was the last time you saw someone uh, no, no. engage in a deadly no combat with someone over an insult? And I would even challenge you that most people wouldn't do it for their kids. They they will say it all day long. Oh, if anybody touches my kid, blah, blah. But in real life, your kids, people's kids go through a lot of horrible things and their parents do nothing. Their parents won't even pull them out of public school, you know? So I, I don't. Yeah, even... you're probably right. Yeah. Every time I, I tinge towards optimism, I guess I'm reminded that. No, I, yeah, fact... children are not well defended by their own parents in, in this it's, society. It's true. It's true. And it, it's webbed up that. So, you know, what I was describing, I did with myself mentally. That would be like a firebase, a little perimeter. And that's it. You know, we're letting the enemy go by. We don't care. We're not interdicting anybody. We're. We're just here. The way most people think, have been taught to think ideologically, it's like the way the army would set something up with these big, long, static lines. 
and that's on that's indefensible once you once they start getting attacked so if we have a web of commitments against different people that are attached to these very brittle you know lines then it just doesn't work that's why you know i, I decided a long time ago i knew i had to make my lines like very small uh, insult never like i would you know the reason why i'm alive today is because i'd ignore insults i had thousands of black men you know they'll call me a bitch ass negro okay and try to pick a fight with me or call me white boy when they're 18 and i'm 50 you know to try to pick a fight with me so you know we're in a situation where external honor is a huge liability like being an honest guy in the workplace and telling the truth about what you did gets people fired all the time uh you know so it makes uh uh, I call it, it's like compression. You have to take your, if you if you don't have a sense of honor, you're not really going to be able to make promises to yourself about what you do in a dynamic situation. But in order to keep that sense of honor from, you know, getting you fired, getting you put in prison and everything, you got to compress it. Now, I've had to talk to guys that had jobs like cops, firemen, prison guards, you know, bouncers about these types of situations. You know, like, you know, what I do, my boss is a liar and, you know, my sense of honor. And I say, well, you know, you have to reserve uh, truth for people that are under your power. OK, and then that's just what they need to know. And uh, for other people who, you know, share your same honor system, which means you can't divulge the whole truth that, you know, to most people. Yeah, right. which, which is tough. Oh, I, you know, I don't know if that's for me, but just that's the entire story of raising children for me right now is that we have truths that we can discuss inside the family that does not get discussed anywhere else and they understand that and I was you know thinking selfishly I've given up at this point probably around two million dollars of salary to stay home my kid with my kids uh, you know a level of poverty it's not poverty we're not really poor but compared to some of our <clears throat> peers here in the Silicon Valley, you know, they won't, people will not even consider a level of poverty to try to improve their own children's lives. So, I don't know, I'm stuck on that. But, yeah, your own person, the personal lines that anybody could maintain right now and, are... Smooth. And women, women absolutely have to have that. I mean, you have to have a personal line. Punky, did you ever hear that podcast we did with Rick and Punky, my crazy friend and his mother? No. You know, Rick was talking to me. He's like, hey, I'm really conflicted. You know, cops have done a lot of cruddy stuff to me, but I can't go with defund the police because what about my mom? Who would protect my mom? I said, well, Rick, do you remember when your stepfather made a threat against your sister? And he said, no, mom never told me that. I said, well, she told me and she told your uncle Rich. And she told Butch that she told me and she told your Uncle Rich. OK, and Butch was always terrified of Uncle Rich and me. He, he was afraid of me just because he thought I was crazy. OK, but Rich used to beat people up and collect money from him. OK, <laughs> so Rich is a guy nobody asked him about his past. And that dude left town. He quit his job. He left town. He took his car. Nothing. She never heard from him again. I said, so your your mother knew this line is crossed. And for a woman, she's got to know when she calls in the artillery, which is 
but whatever man has made a commitment to defend her no matter what, you know, to include her honor and her children, you know, so that, that's that's actually pretty simple for women. I prefer dealing with a woman that would actually say, you know what, if this happens, I'm calling you. And then you're just going to, have to throw your life away than to have to deal with a woman in my life that's going to get raped and then lie to me about it because she's afraid I'm going to go to jail. You know, for doing something to or the guy. Who that wants did that. To put, or who doesn't want to see you do anything and would rather call the cops at right. once for any. Well, there was there was a presidential case. Remember that guy Yang? Oh yeah. Asian guy that ran for president or whatever. I think it was him that was famous uh, or became infamous in that he was publicly talking about when he was running for president. His wife was getting molested by her doctor. I think she had some kind of fertility doctor or whatever, and the fertility doctor was. Oh yeah, I think that was, uh, and he's publicly out there talking about it. And I was thinking, kill yourself. How horribly! (laughs) Like how? Like I'm getting embarrassed for this guy, standing up and publicly talking about you know the scourge of having a doctor with his hand in my wife's, you know, between my wife's legs for pleasure, and. I was just blown away that this guy could just walk through that, and, and it was kind of like a so what thing to him. Of like a well, somebody health. needs somebody needs to take care of this, right? We need to I mean, form a commission and have this guy like some. It's not my job; it's somebody's he, job. You know, he could have at least punched a guy in the face and gotten eighteen months of public service. You know, and he wouldn't even go to jail. I want. I want <laughs> This is what we talked about. Yeah, like when when we were talking about James about telling guys like go live among the homeless. Right. You can afford a misdemeanor, right? Yeah. Get this through your head. You can afford anybody. I don't care if you are, you know, whatever profession you are in, everybody can afford a misdemeanor. You you'll you'll get past it. You people will will get over it, and it will improve your character. <laughs> But they're just, people are just uh, relentlessly, men are relentlessly trained in our society to be a violent and, and, you know, totally lacking in violence. And when they, you know, especially white men, frankly, and the, their outlet for that is to watch, right? As we talked about earlier, it's okay if you watch the MMA. But if that bum that's bothering you and, and, you know, you're walking with your girl on the street and that bum's, you know, mouthing off is in your face, you're not supposed to do anything violent against him. Uh, And you're trained uh, relentlessly on that point. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, one of my points in the book is you have to get you have to start to bring yourself out of that mindset. And I think the misdemeanor thing is a great point. You know, people are just they have all these excuses for why they don't want to act in situations when they should. Yeah, you pointed out in your, in, in your book that that's going against your design. Yeah, exactly. I mean, literally going against your design, right? So we have men are bigger than women. There's a biological purpose for that cost of making that bigger body. And the aggression that is packaged into it. There should be. So can I suggest in our, limited time here that I'm dying to talk. This is my chance to talk to James about grocery, uh, the grocery business. Of course, so, my favorite topic. Rough, a very rough and awkward transition to the grocery <laughs> I'm sorry. Again, my hostess duties are I'm I, falling I just, down. 
Yesterday morning, I had a nightmare that woke me up that I was stuck in a supermarket that kept changing design. It was going from like a 70s to an 80s to a 90s design, and it resulted in me being lost. I was trying to quit the job, and I couldn't. I couldn't find a door. I couldn't find a time clock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're struggling right now. Clark has pointed out on Twitter, and I have seen firsthand, there's an egg shortage, a nationwide egg shortage right now. It's, It's terrible. Well, yeah, the thing is, I'm not sure what it is exactly. I I can only describe what I've seen because actually this weekend I had no problems finding eggs. But there was a period there about a week or so ago where multiple, I I eat a lot of eggs, so I was trying to find some good, uh, you know, pasture-raised type eggs, which, you know, supposedly are better. And I couldn't find them. Like multiple grocery stores just out. And I was shocked by this, so I was checking on the internet and then I, other people were complaining at different times. Like I was seeing these posts from like a week before or two weeks before. So it seemed like there was a sequential egg failure that I don't know if it was real or imposed somehow or a function of distribution or what, but I don't know, James, have you noticed that and you know, have any comments there? Uh, well, I, when I was working at Gershbeck's the last supermarket I was at, Larry was the king of this. I mean, he knew he knew the poultry guys. Okay, so it, you'd have this cycle on these chickens. The chickens only lay for two years if you raise them in a home. It's a much shorter shorter cycle in the factory. Okay, so he would he would track when chickens were at their peak, when they had the most chickens, and they were laying. And as soon as the rate of laying of commercial chickens drops, they just kill them all. Okay, so and then that's where you get all your canned chicken and your chicken salad stuff and your chicken soup from that. And I've physically done this with, you know, 11 chickens. I will kill them. Each one kind of goes into a pint. When you see egg prices take a nosedive and you got this big sale on eggs, then they're just about to kill all those chickens. And then so after you see your your egg prices take a nose dive, then, you know, uh, there's going to be either a shortage of eggs or a steep rise in egg prices, you know, the next month, the next month over. So when you see the egg prices bottom out, they'll last a couple of months. Just buy a whole bunch of them. okay? because then there's going to there's going to be a wave. And especially in this cold weather, you can put them in the garage. They don't even they don't need full refrigeration. Well, we didn't even actually at Gershbeck's. We wouldn't we'd buy so many of them. We wouldn't even refrigerate them. We'd park 10 pallets on the dock. OK, you'd have to time it like that. OK, that, that's what's happening. I mean, the best thing you could do is find somebody that has chickens, you know, and get there. I live with people who raise their own chickens and uh, and sell the eggs in the West. But. You know, one guy with 30 to 60 chickens, he's only going to be able to supply five to 10 families with eggs, and including his own. So I think it's, part it's of not what's, a- what's going on right now is there was an avian flu went through the whole chicken industry. And so it takes some number of weeks to get the flocks, the egg laying flocks back up. So we may be at okay. the tail end of it now, maybe coming out. But who knows what else? There's always something. I mean, I have when when these things happen, I have no idea at this point, no idea what is real, what is manufactured, what is uh, a question of management, a question of distribution systems. It's just all uh, cryptic to me. 
Yeah, and that it's uh, I think it's both because I think what's happened since COVID is that uh, once something happens to a market and it gives a cause for a rise in product and causes a little bit of scarcity, then the people in that market they want to accentuate that. They want to take a dive on that. You know, if their beef prices goes up, well, go up, well, then they might as well go way up. I mean, the beef crisis, you know, that whole thing, that was totally manufactured. Uh, and it wasn't for the good of the people selling the beef that, uh, at, you know, at the grower level, uh, they actually got hurt on it. But I think people after that in any industry, they're all ready to make a profit off of their product suddenly becoming scarce. And they're going to do what they can uh, to just ride that train when it happens because they're also trying to get as much currency as they can while the currency is devaluing so they want it now so they can buy stuff with it now you know so people are getting more short term on their money thinking for sure yeah the inflation has that's something i often mention as a south american is that inflation will mess up your people's time preference and that will be a durable damage that you know doesn't matter how far inside the Hajnal line you are if people start messing with the currency that they will mess up your um, your time preference at least for a while yeah and the other thing about the grocery industry that as a complete unknowing outsider it strikes me that one the margins are probably pretty low right for most of the products at the it just seems like a terrible way to try to make money You basically provide jobs after expense, so you're net. Okay, you you can look at a price of a certain thing, okay, like uh, cheese, and see a 35% profit margin. Sausage, 38%. Looks like a huge, a huge profit margin. But at the end of the year, when you look at the supermarket, they're making between a half a cent and two cents on the dollar. It's crazy. And it so. Utility. I mean, you could. Uh, I worked in a. Uh, I worked in the supermarket 50 years ago. That was a small supermarket then. That had a $5,000 a month gas and electric bill. Well, today for a big supermarket, now you're talking about 50 grand a month for your gas and electric bill. You know that. So it's just the size it's, of the buildings are huge. I mean, just everything is so. It just seems like a terrible way to make. And hey, to be honest with you, and I don't mean to, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, James, but it also seems like a terrible place to work. To yeah, 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 it was terrible. I, uh, I you, think I, it's a very slave oriented. I mean, I'm not, I have, I mean, we're all slaves in our different way, but the, uh, like, remember when COVID hit and all these poor, I used to go to a grocery store and I'd see all these poor workers there and everyone's debating masks and all this stuff. And no one gave a shit about these people in the grocery store. They're just basically completely ignored and not even part of the conversation. It was like, fuck you, work. Use my French. But the it was and no one even cared. Oh, you could be a 40 year old man and some woman will come into the store and come up to you and call you a stock boy nice. you, you know I, I mean it's just it was I think it was actually good for uh, for my development as an observer of reality by uh, observing it from the sewer uh, so, 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 so to speak but but yeah it was uh, it was just terrible it was just terrible business I'm, I still have nightmares that you know 
I never became a hobo, that I'm actually still working in a supermarket. That's the nightmare. Not that I'm a homeless guy, okay? Uh, with clothes that don't fit him, but that my nightmare is I wake up and I've actually got a job. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wearing the stained white shirt, the black slacks, and the dye, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, to be honest with you, there's a certain level of respect, James. I think you've earned, not just for me, I, I, as you know, I've been very happy to try to promote your work. Um, to the extent that I have any kind of audience myself, and the but the thing that jumped out is I'm like this guy was getting on public transportation, you know, as as a white man in Baltimore, inner city, on public transportation, going to and from the grocery store for years, thirty eight years, and I'm like, you know, this guy probably has seen some things in it. This and what you read, you know. You know, again, I, I don't know you in terms of uh, uh, as being any kind of close friend or anything. I, I think you're great, James. But it reads, it rings as true, not just because of the content, just because of the circumstances that there's no way that this guy couldn't have been in all kinds of crazy situations with those bus people uh, for years. Oh, oh, it's just it's all uh, fiction. And it, yeah, yeah, it was just. It's really just crazy. I mean, just I, whenever I come west, they can't wait to hear the stories from my few months in Baltimore, like taking the bus and everything. I mean, uh, four guys trying to mug me in 10 minutes within three blocks. Oh, you know, there was one from before hobo times where <laughs> it was like when you were working at night and you missed a bus. And then so you had to go take this longer bus route. It was one of your eeriest, like, uh, what do you call, um, atmospheric horror. That's what you writer people call it, right? It's totally eerie, totally, like, just one bizarre sighting after another as you travel through. I, I, I didn't realize at the time that I was absolutely blessed. Okay, I actually, <laughs> that's like my daily diary of how I survived the bus ride, bus ride last night. So I used to post in real time. I mean, that's basically how I ended up being able to sell some books because these people would, oh, is he alive? <laughs> you know, let's check and see what happened, you know, on the way to work last night, you know. So, so as a writer, I, it's one of the reasons why. Sometimes I would pretend I just wanted to be the last member of my family, you know, fighting off the hordes out of darkest Africa. But, uh, you know, in reality, I was staying there because as long as possible because uh, the material was so rich. That, yeah. You know, it was just it. You know, every book wrote itself. I couldn't go a month without having to wrap up a book on just streets. And I want to say one more thing, which is that you um, one of the things that people would notice about you in those days was that you were like not racist enough in some ways like in some ways oh, racist I, I, but, I, I, but then i i know what happened was that you came out west and you were like this is what life could be like <laughs> what even all population you right you know what i mean like the other popular the less melanated populations are even oh. of a much different caliber than what you experienced in baltimore so people don't get that like some some guys on the right are like very um they want you know everybody to feel very strongly at all times about these things uh and so they don't understand what a man like you has seen and experienced and how you had to really just pick individuals who might be an ally for a moment whatever they look like 
because it's just bonkers. So different. Yeah. You came then you came to Utah and you were like, "What the hell is this like? Am I in heaven?" <laughs> oh, it, it, it's like you go from Baltimore where you're stepping off the bus and you know if you like pass out for some reason that if you're lucky enough to wake up alive, that you're going to be like half naked and all your possessions are going to be gone. People are going to be like, you know, fighting over your shoes. <laughs> and, and these are like the people that are pretending, that, you know, they're actually on their way to work. But you know what? If you pass out right there, we'll just we'll just rob this cracker instead and go home and get high. I don't need to buy my weed money from the dairy clerk at work. I can, <laughs> I can buy it right across the street, you know, and then you go out west and. You're walking on the side of the road, and a half mile from you, there's a Mormon guy in his white pickup truck, uh, and he actually drives on the wrong side of the road. So that just in case you were drunk and you stumbled out in the middle of the road and fell, there's no possible way he could run you over. <laughs> and they wave to you. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like people thought I was either deaf, deaf or rude because I wasn't waving to people. Like my first year out in Utah, I was like, what's the matter with this guy? I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, so, yeah, it was a real I had real culture shock, uh, you know, coming out west. Uh, people like you all have enabled this advanced misbehavior in my life. I mean, uh, you know, buying my books and and that stuff. I actually, you know, I make enough money to get train tickets and uh, tramp around in my donated clothes. And, uh, you know, and that's another favorite LaFond genre that I have is the Amtrak. <laughs> Because, you know, I have to say that you know, it's been a long time since I've been on, on any kind of Amtrak. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is I was always curious, you know, how, what what's it like in COVID area era? And I see you you'll make these little kind of blog posts about it. And it's like the mask thing is kind of <laughs> funny and people's response, you know, to the mask order and all that and the the weird characters you get on there. But it's kind of sort of like a like a degraded odyssey or something where you're sort of trekking from point to point, homeless man trekking from point to point. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. see it as Jonah, right? Cause okay, I think, yeah, like, that too. Yeah. You know, get, like, get on the boat, Jonah, or you're going to have to getting the whale or the fish. I like to think of it as Odysseus with polio, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a mix of it's a mix of Odysseus and Jonah, in my opinion. I've we, I've used both of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the jo Jonah really feels right. So I, uh, uh, that you know, I will. I, I try to put as much of that stuff in my fiction as I can. I've done a couple of novels kind of built around train trips. You know that I used like real train experiences, like the last two novels I wrote. You know, were built around. I think Seeker Kane, uh, and Dollar Joe. Uh, they were both basically I took a bunch of train stuff instead of writing articles. I made them chapters in the novels. And uh, <clears throat> there's there's one I just wrote that I forgot the title of. So that's not auspicious. That's probably not going to be uh, <laughs> very popular. But but anyhow, it's you uh, changed I tried the title to... a few times. That's why you can't remember it. Oh, oh okay. I okay. can't so, remember so... either, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> But yeah, I, it's a way to run across real characters. It, it's that one thing that's happened. Uh, men 
if they see a single man, some man is going to seek you out for a conversation on train, basically tell you his life story. Because people have just been so atomized. And it was even before COVID that was happening. I mean, people would, if you're traveling alone and you're not going to get in trouble with a wife for talking. Uh, if there's another person that's not going to get in trouble with a wife for talking to a man, because that's what it comes down to, uh, they'll come seek you out and talk to you. Yeah. And it started again with COVID where the wives are behind masks and they're hiding and then men are like, hey, you know, what's your story? This is my story. And, you know, so that was uh, so I got some, you know, train stories that way. So and I've seen more and more all across the country this year. Just particularly important, like just uh, at 30 to 70 year old men, you know, all races really are much more likely to say, hi, how you doing? Uh, or hold the door for you or ask you if you're doing okay. Yeah, uh, I guess so some, attempt, some attempt to get some kind of human, real human contact that's been stripped from people. That's been positive. And I think part of it is also kind of looking for that temporary ally against like these, these zombies in their 20s that are either just like these listless chemed up retards Order predators. Yeah. That, you know, so there's that too. You got like a 40 year old guy kind of make trying to make friends with a 60 year old guy because there's a group of 30 year old guys skulking around that don't look like they have good intentions. So I, I think that's actually the increased violence in a place like Portland and as with back in Baltimore has actually made good people more social to strangers. Uh, I've been running into that a lot, you know. So, uh, the world continues to improve from my perspective. Okay. From a fond so. perspective, yeah, the, right. the total um, shitholification of Portland's <laughs> Excuse me. But, yeah, to, I, I always complain, like, James, why can't you predict some nice things to happen or, uh, you know, just hey. make, make life better for us? But, no, we have to lafondify. Well, there's a guy that's impelled me to write about 30 books. He interviews me. I call him Mr. Gray. He's got the Indies Goings Down YouTube channel. He interviews me a lot when I'm back east. He called me up and he said, if somebody came from the future when you were stocking shelves and said to you, look, all these weird ideas you have kicking around in your head, if you write about them, not only is this all going to come true, but it's going to result in you becoming homeless okay, <laughs> and a bum. You know, so all we need you to do to save the future is just to keep stocking groceries. He said, what would you do? I said, I would immediately quit my job, abandon my family and become a hobo <laughs> and start writing. So, that, might be, uh, that might be a good note for us here to. I've got to go. Clark is, all, Clark is out of time. Hey, it's been fantastic. Thank you. I'm really glad. This is something I promised a long time ago, and I finally came through. Um, it's been a tough times for me for various reasons. So I appreciate your patience and uh, joining Thanks, us. Mark. Fantastic. Yeah, good luck with that. I know, I know we've been talking off uh, sidebarring on that, and uh, good luck with that. I'm sorry to hear all that. Uh, congratulations on the book, man, and uh, send me the train station near you so uh, I can pay you a visit before I go back to Cape Town, Maryland. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Thank you both. I hope you guys have a great day. All right. Take care, man.